0: Our precious Father in heaven, we thank you for these words written for us. We pray that by the power of your Spirit, we might hear you speak, and that you might conform us to know the love of Christ and to be like him. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come uh, this morning to the end of three long chapters where Paul has been wrestling what it means to live out your freedom as a Christian and to exercise that freedom in love in the relationships around about you. But as he does in this last section, he comes to engage again with particularly idolatry and what that means for relationship with your neighbour. And the problem for us sitting in this room is that either makes this passage feel about a million miles away from your lived experience or right up close and personal to home. I suspect that for many of you, the thought, where did my meat come from, and has it been sacrificed to anything, is not one that's kind of crossed your mind in the ins and outs of your daily life, but for some of our brothers and sisters here, I'm sure that it has. When I worked at the University of New South Wales, this passage for our focus students, for our international brothers and sisters from Malaysia and Indonesia and China, actually had great significance. When they went home for holidays or they went back for a family funeral and the questions were going to be asked, will you hold the incense? Will you bow down? Will you participate in these ways in the ancestors of the dead? Will you honour your family? Will you live in a way that's right? Um, These questions were a very long way from being academic, in fact. (laughs) And they were about how will you live honouring Jesus and living rightly with your neighbour? Which, friends, even as we start, is an incredibly important reminder to us, isn't it, to not just read our own experience into the text of Scripture and the realities of what Scripture is calling us to. Uh, These words are real and rich and important in all sorts of contexts in the world, even if we don't feel them being up close and personal to ourselves. But I do want to say to you this morning that I think that this issue matters for all of us, because in some ways it strikes towards the heart of what it means to honour Christ, to know our freedom and therefore live self-sacrificially in relationship with others. So there are two issues on the table, excuse the pun. Uh, The first half of the chapter is about fleeing from idolatry. The second is about living with your neighbour well in the context of idolatry. And let's unpack each in turn. The first part is actually a preacher's delight because the application comes up front in the first verse, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Uh, when it comes to the possibility of worshipping an idol, turn around and run very quickly in the other direction, is pretty much Paul's advice. And it's really, in some ways, the end of the previous part of the chapter, right? You remember last sermon, uh, the last passage that we heard? Paul said, remember what happened to Israel when they participated in adultery? It did not end well. In fact, God's judgment fell on them in all sorts of awful ways, because of their rebellion and rejection against God. So Paul says, run away from idolatry. But he's not quite finished explaining to them why idolatry is so significant and important and why we must flee from it. The big and important thing about idolatry is actually who you participate with. But in order to understand the significance of that, you need to remember a little bit about the context of the argument. So remember, Paul's been talking with the Corinthians and the Corinthians' basic position is because God's in control of everything and an idol's just a block of wood and the meat is just a cow that belongs to God anyway. If I go along to the local temple and eat, I'm not participating in anything because none of those things mean anything at all. Back in 1 Corinthians 8, you remember, Paul's kind of quoted their logic to them. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. The Corinthians have theology on their side. They've done a whole lot of good post-Jesus thinking. They know that God's the Lord that they know that all of the creation belongs to him. They know that the block of wood that is an idol is just a block of wood. They know that the stake is just a stake and so they're free to participate. And Paul's trying to say to them, yes, but you're kind of missing something in your theologizing." But do you notice, Paul doesn't deny the truth of their statements. So in chapter 10 and verse 19, he says, what do I imply then that the food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. He completely agrees with all of their theological reasoning. He just suggests that they haven't thought widely enough or broadly enough and they use those truths unreflectively. You see, you can know all of those things. The idol is a block of wood, the stake is just one of God's cows, therefore what should you do with it? Well, you actually need to remember what people are doing as they participate in idolatry. Verse 20 I imply that what pagan sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Now, for us, I think this feels like a little bit of a blast out of nowhere, right? <laughs> kind of we're rocking along and there's this little bit of theologizing going along and then all of a sudden you're participating with demons and it feels a bit out of control. But actually, Paul's just laying on the table what they should have known from reading the entire Old Testament. Can you show me a single verse in the Old Testament that might have suggested that idolatry was okay? I mean, (laughs) you know, from the Ten Commandments onwards, nobody was standing around going, just if we do a bit more thinking about this, we'll solve the problem. God's been very clear all the way along that idolatry is awful. But what Paul wants to say to them is that what happens in idolatry is not the significance of the wood or the stake, but what people are participating in. That's the category that matters for him. What are they doing as they bow down to worship this thing? He says they're actually bowing down to falsehood. Even at its best, remember that, you know, Israel holds up the golden calf and calls it Yahweh. You cannot represent God in the form of something lifeless. And at worst, these idols are a picture of someone else and some other God, even if there are no gods. People are worshipping something other than the Creator who made them. And Paul said, whatever you do in worship is a participation in the things that are involved there. It's why he takes them back to Israel's experience of the altar in verse 18. When the Israelites ate the meat sacrificed in the tabernacle, what were they doing? They were participating together in, and I take it, the benefits of the altar. What happened when the priest brought the sacrifice in? And killed it in front of the lord and sprinkled the blood on the altar uh, and declared the sins of the people god by his gracious promise said that in this sacrifice and in this activity at this altar you actually come to share in the blessings of grace and forgiveness the washings of sin and the acceptance as my people in spite of what you've done wrong and paul says so when the israelites ate the meat that was sacrificed They weren't just sharing a meal. They were saying, we together are enjoying all of the benefits of the sacrifice that has taken place on our behalf. And so they ate not just to be full, but they ate to participate in the blessings of God. And so, Paul says, that is what happens when you come to participate in the Lord's Supper. When you drink the cup, when you drink the cup, What do you do? You participate in the blood of Christ, verse 16. And when you come to eat of the bread, what do you do? You participate in the body of Christ. Friends, when we come to eat the Lord's Supper, we actually participate together in all of the goodness and benefits won for us by the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus on our behalf. You don't get extra credit, there's not bonus forgiveness at the Lord's Supper. I'm not saying that I didn't belong to Jesus before and I do now. But what I'm saying is that God in his graciousness gave us a way of participating together and reminding one another of all of the benefits that Christ has won for us and they become ours. We are his and he belongs to us and spiritually we participate in Christ in the supper. And this, brothers and sisters, is why I am not a memorialist when it comes to the Lord's Supper. I do think we are remembering something, but I think there's something good in what God has given us to do as we participate together in the eating and the drinking, which actually helps us and encourages us in our faith and reminds us that we participate in all of the goodness of everything that Christ won for us on the cross. Jesus died so that you could be completely cleansed from sin and be declared to be his child and cry out to him as father and participate in the joy and the hope of heaven. And God said, and now I'm going to give you this way of celebrating together that you participate in all of the goodness of what Christ has done. In fact, you will participate in Christ. And it's why those jolly COVID communion packages are an abomination. (laughs) We do not participate in the one wafer. And you might laugh about that, but actually there's this weird anti-symbolic thing that we do as evangelicals that denies the scriptures. God gave us in the Lord's Supper the symbol of the loaf and we participate of the one loaf and the Bible tells us that matters because you are the one body. You participate together in the one thing. The symbolism matters. Um, Here again, brothers and sisters, I think that we theologize our way out of what the Bible tells us is true of the experience of the participation of life in God's world. Because everything is by faith, no symbolism matters. But actually, because everything is by faith, we trust in the symbols that the Lord has given to us that are good for us and good for each other. But do you notice then, verse 17... When we participate together in the one bread, we who are many are one body, for we partake of the one bread. When we eat the Lord's Supper together, we remind one another that we belong to one another. Every single person in the room, every person in your church who knows Jesus is your brother or sister in Christ. You notice the language he uses at the start flee from idolatry, my beloved. You are my beloved. And I pray that I am yours. And I pray that you are one another's beloved. I pray that you, you care for each other, the people that you find easy and comfortable to be with and the people that you don't. Paul says, in God's grace, we participate in Christ in the Lord's Supper. But when you come to the idol feast at the local temple, you can't theologize your way out of what you participate in You're actually participating in the worship of demons. You are encouraging people in the fact that they believe that they can get grace and favour and blessing by bowing down and worshipping the things of the created world rather than the creator himself. Which is why, brothers and sisters, for those of you who've come from family backgrounds where this is a real issue, I am so encouraged by you I have friends, I know people who have gone home and said, I'm not going to do what you want me to do at the family funeral because I love Jesus. And I know that that's going to hurt. And I know that you may even ostracise me because of it. But I want to honour Christ and I love you enough to say that honouring Jesus matters. But as I've read this passage, the words that have also rung in my ears this week have been the ears of Col- uh, the words of Colossians three. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And it just caused me to wonder, to what extent do we participate in the greed which is idolatry in the world around about us? Um, I find it fascinating the language that we adopt naturally as Christians. Um, We binge on Netflix. Why have we so comfortably adopted that language as our own? Why would you go home on the weekend to binge on something? Why would the the thought of consuming something to excess, which we can kind of laugh about with our neighbours, is good for us spiritually or personally or as servants of God in the world... And I wonder about how the world talks about our shopping and our sales and the click frenzy that we have. Isn't it interesting that the words of kind of ecstatic religious celebration are tied with our shopping? I mean, when I think of frenzy, I think of the prophets of Baal cutting themselves before uh, Elijah uh, calling out, crying out for, for their God to come and bring down fire on the thing. So why do we participate in the click frenzy? What is it that we gain in our shopping, in our use of our our possessions, in our... Do we look any different in any way, shape or form from the world about us in our hunger and thirst for materialism and momentary experiential satisfaction? Brothers and sisters, what might you do differently with your money and your possessions because you participate in the Lord Jesus Christ? Where do you struggle with greed? How does the pursuit of comfort and security in the things of the world relate to your participation with your precious Lord? I'm struck by my own reflections about kind of thinking more about holidays than heaven. What's the thing that's gonna give me relief here? It's getting to a holiday. But actually God's promise is that there's a heavenly rest. And I get to participate in that with God's people. Why don't you, as you go to morning tea this morning, talk a little bit about what it means to participate with Jesus and where we participate in greed and how we might help one another not to. But Paul doesn't finish there. The second half of the chapter brings home some of the realities of not participating in the complexity of idolatry in the world with living well with your neighbour. You see verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbour. Paul has argued that their knowledge of idols, that they are nothing and that idol meat is nothing, is absolutely true. But the bigger category is participation. What will you participate in? But, of course, this is a problem. If you're fleeing from idolatry and you know that your neighbour, when you go over for dinner, is offering meat that might have been offered in idolatry, what on earth do you do? Do you just cut yourself off completely from your neighbour? Do you eat with them? How do you relate to your next-door neighbour when this is the world and the context in which you live? Do you withdraw from society completely? And in this context, Paul has a couple of pieces of wisdom to offer. His first is, verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. They were right. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you despise to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. You do live in a world of idolatry, but you can go next door to dinner and it's okay. Basically, he's saying, you don't need to perform source criticism on your steak. Uh, It's all right. Uh, You don't need to go to your local Thai restaurant and ask the Daryl Kerrigan questions. What what is this and what have you done to it? Um, (laughs) The truth... That an idol is nothing and that the meat is nothing means that you can go and eat with your next-door neighbour without asking questions of conscience. You don't need to worry about participating together with them in their idolatry in one form or another. But, verse 28, if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. If the person tells you that it's been sacrificed to idols, for you to participate in this point is going to suggest something to them that is unhelpful for their understanding of who God is and what he's like. And so Paul says, there are all sorts of places to forego your freedom. Now, this leads to the most cryptic two verses in this passage, verses 29 and 30. I do not mean your conscience, but his, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? These verses raise an awful lot of discussion in the commentaries. Here's what I think they mean. Please feel free to argue with me about it afterwards. Um, I think what he's saying is if you kind of act on your conscience at this point in time, you are likely that the other person is going to condemn or judge you for your exercise of your freedom. And he's saying if you are genuinely free, don't hold it up to be judged or criticised by other people. You don't need to flaunt your freedom and get your freedom judged or kind of whatever. Just choose not to exercise it because actually what matters more than your freedom is what's going on for your neighbour and what they believe is happening in this moment when you eat with them. Because for Paul, actually, you are living for God and for your neighbour. Verse 31, whether you eat or drink, For whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offence to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul says you're free. You are totally free. And what do you do with your freedom as a follower of Jesus? You use it for God's glory and for the sake of your neighbour. That's why it's been given to you. You see, what did Jesus do? He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was equal with God. He had more freedom than anyone in the known universe. But what did he do with it? Well, he didn't cling to it. He didn't hold on to it. He was willing to become human, for crying out loud. You know how crummy that is. He was willing to be made like you and to experience all of the messy horrible stuff of this world of being hungry and being ashamed and being spat upon and being ridiculed and having people think differently and not understand you and all of that kind of stuff he was willing to give it up to become like us to lay down his life in his death on the cross so that he might win salvation for people who were his enemies And so Paul says, if you participate in Jesus, if you know what it is that Jesus is your Lord and you know what it is that He has done for you, then you would understand that the way you live your life is not for yourself. The way that you eat and drink and shop and work and everything that you do, it's not for you. It is to please others, not take your own advantage so that others might, by the grace of God, be saved. So imitate me as I imitate Christ, Paul says. Brothers and sisters, next week we're going to go away on mission. And I know that for every one of you, your church looks different. They're not all the same. The missions are not all the same. Some of your churches are highly organised. Some of them aren't. Some of your churches have some events that are highly organised and others that aren't. Some of you are going to places where the church thinks we just want you to come alongside us and watch what we do. Others of you are been called more to come and get involved. Um, when you go, why are you going? How are you going? What are you going to participate in? Well, I hope that you're going to participate in the Lord Jesus and to love whoever God puts in your path by sharing the the love of Christ with them and by speaking the truth. I pray that you will go and pour yourself out and get involved and be willing to give yourself up, live with the things that don't work, don't grumble, but live faithfully and gently and generously and be an example of what it means to be a participant in Christ, that we might encourage God's people wherever we go that they should live like that, but also so that the gospel might be known. And so that people might come to faith next week and come to life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Our Lord God, we're struck again today by the incredible privilege that we get to participate in Jesus. Lord, in everything that he did for us in his death and resurrection, they are ours through faith by the work of your Spirit. And so we thank you for the privilege of sharing the Lord's Supper together. But Father, we come to acknowledging the reality of our own hearts, the nature of our own idolatry, our temptation to participate in this world in all sorts of ways that deny you and live as the pagans do. So, Father, refresh us again with the knowledge of what it means to belong to Jesus and lead our hearts to the point where we would be willing to give ourselves up that others might know you and might honour him as Lord. Father, please do it for his sake and your glory. Amen.